At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk with the great Gary Young about support for Black Lives Matter in Europe and about whether the racism in England is better than what we have in the United States. But first, Donald Trump went to Kenosha on Tuesday, part of his campaign strategy of fanning the flames of racial conflict, and then arguing that he alone can save America from violence and chaos, which he says is caused by people protesting police killings of black men. And of course, Kenosha is the place where police shot Jacob Blake, a black man, in the back seven times in front of his three children, and where a few days later a teenage right-wing vigilante shot and killed two men protesting the shooting of Jacob Blake. Our John Nichols is in Kenosha. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. John, welcome back and tell us what's happening with Trump's visit to Kenosha at this hour. Well, uh, we're talking as Trump's around the time Trump's arriving, and uh, the, the town has had a lot of activity today. Uh, there have been press conferences, dueling press conferences, if you will, very political. There, uh, downtown, there's probably about 100, uh, 150 folks who gathered uh, to greet the president. It may be a bigger crowd by the time he, he physically gets there. Um, and then uh, in the neighborhood where Jacob Blake was shot, and it's very important to kind of keep a, a focus on on you know, where this began. It began with police violence. It began with a shooting. Uh, in that neighborhood, uh, something else altogether is going on, and that is that people are doing a, a community upkeep, a community improvement project. They're mowing lawns and, and fixing up houses and doing voter registration. Effectively, that was the choice of a lot of folks uh, rather than to go and, you know, watch the president do his tour, uh, they're trying to do something useful. And I think that there is a, a strong sense on a part of a lot of folks that the president's visit is not useful uh, whatsoever, that he is, in fact, coming to, as uh, Congressman Mark Pocan said, you know, stir racial tensions or increase racial tensions that, that have already existed. The governor of the state, Tony Evers, has uh, asked the president not to come. The lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, has asked the president not to come. The attorney general, the chief law enforcement officer in the state, Josh Call, 
has asked the president not to come. The mayor of Kenosha has said it's the wrong time to come. And yet Trump is still coming. And I think it's probably best summed up in the words of Gwen Moore, the great congresswoman from Milwaukee, who grew up in Racine, just three miles north of Kenosha, and said the reason the president's coming is to film a commercial. So this is all about politics. And, and tell us a little about politics in Kenosha. Trump has said, quote, radical left mayors and governors, close quote, are responsible for the violence. Does Kenosha have a radical left mayor? Does Wisconsin have a radical left governor? Well, uh, there's not much in these very dark and troubling days that would make me laugh. <laughs> um, but the notion of John Antaramian, the uh, longtime mayor of Kenosha, former legislator, who, you know, is about as classic an old school Democrat as you'll meet. He looks like a guy who could have been on the floor of the 1960 Democratic National Convention, <laughs> um, but not necessarily on the liberal wing of it. Uh, John, John Antaramian, who I've known since I was a kid, he's no lefty. He's kind of a old school businessman, Democrat, very much rooted in his own town. I think he's even acknowledged he's been overwhelmed by the events of the last few days. He is not a radical Democrat. And Tony Evers may well be the most mild uh, <laughs> governor in America. And he, is, he is a resolutely calm and decent man. He has called out police violence. He has asked for changes in state laws that would uh, establish use of force protocols so that the police would not start shooting, uh, but would indeed try to dial down shooting to avoid incidents precisely like what happened in Kenosha. He has been a strong supporter of police reforms, of police oversight, but I would say that that puts him very much in the mainstream of America if polling is to be believed. So I want to talk more about Kenosha in a minute, but first... You know, I think everybody wants to know about the significance of all this for politics in Wisconsin, since Wisconsin is a key swing state that Trump barely won last time and has to win this time if he has a chance of, of, of winning the Electoral College. The 538 website on Tuesday uh, has Biden at 49.9% in Wisconsin and Trump at 436 Biden ahead by 6.3 for those who like the decimal points and very close to the coveted 50% line. Have you seen any evidence that Trump's efforts to fan the flames of racial tension and, and exploit these shootings uh, are, are helping him in Wisconsin? No, but I, I have heard a lot of people talking about it. And that's the interesting thing. Wisconsin is a closely divided state. You know that, and I think most people do. In fact, if Biden's got a six-point lead or you know something in that in that range, then that's basically in the overall pattern of closely contested president, presidential races. That's a Wisconsin landslide. I mean, that's that's a huge lead. Remember that in the back in the days of Al Gore and John Kerry, both of whom won Wisconsin, they won by. 10, 15,000 votes. It was tiny, tiny margins. Trump won by 22,000 votes. Uh, it was a tiny, tiny margin. So this state does divide closely on presidential races. Now, Barack Obama broke that pattern and, and won the state very easily. And there has historically been a Democratic lean, but it's not been a big lean. And so what Trump is trying to do, of course, is to 
shift the politics. In the suburbs of Milwaukee, to get people scared enough to come out and vote, uh, excited enough to back him at a time when I think a lot of people are very frustrated with his presidency and his handling of COVID-19. Because of all those realities, there's a lot of people who are sort of buzzing that there's going to be a backlash, that somehow Wisconsin is going to shift over and say, uh, oh, well, you know, we really don't care about your massive mishandling of a pandemic and the mass unemployment that has extended from it. And the fact that you have, you know, literally extended and, and fanned the flames of racial tensions and that you've screwed up pretty much everything else. You don't care about that because you came to Kenosha and you defended an out-of-state vigilante who came in and shot two protesters. I know there's people who think that backlash politics could play out. But if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want to counter it, it's, it's not hard to do. Because the fact of the matter is that what Donald Trump is doing right now is grotesque. And it's so transparent. It, it's so ugly and transparent that my sense is that Wisconsin will, you know, to the extent that there are swing voters, if they, if there are any left, that they will be put off by this. And and I I don't say that you know out of wishful thinking. I say that as somebody who's a seventh generation Wisconsin, I've got pretty good roots here. And you know my my sense is that that this sort of politics isn't going to work. It will work with the people who are inclined to respond to it, but they're yeah. already for Trump anyway. Black Lives Matter is everywhere in America, which includes Kenosha. I know there was a big rally on Saturday, and you were there. Tell us about that. Uh, it was great. The rally was was fantastic, and the march and rally. The neighborhood where the rally or march started was up at a, on a hill uh, outside of downtown. And if you went to the bottom of the hill as the march began, the, the you would see this people coming over the, the top and coming down into downtown. And it, it just kept going. There were thousands of people. It was multiracial, multiethnic, marching behind a sign that said justice for Jacob Blake. And there was simply no question that uh, this, was, this was an expression driven largely by people from Kenosha. There were some folks from out of town, but largely by people from Kenosha who were saying, we want to deal with this thing. We want to we, we really do want justice for Jacob Blake. Yes, they want to rebuild their city, and the city took a hard hit on, on Monday and Tuesday. There were some fires. There were some buildings that were destroyed, um, and, and people are shaken by that. There's no question. But there's also – I think there's, a, there's evidence of a real understanding that Kenosha has to rebuild in a better way, that its policing does need to change. And there have been calls for the police chief to resign and for the sheriff to – to resign. And there have been calls for the removal of the sheriff and the police chief if they don't resign. There are also lots of other folks talking about, you know, broader responses to systemic racism uh, that address employment issues and education issues. So we've talked about the the elected officials. Of course, there's another powerful uh, political force that's emerged uh, in, in the last few days in Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Bucks, just up the road a bit. They, of course, refused to play game five of their first round NBA playoff series in Orlando, uh, and that spread throughout the entire 
NBA, and it's had a big effect. It's had a big effect here in Los Angeles, where the Staples Center, where the Lakers play, in response to demands started by the Milwaukee Bucks, is going to become a a polling place uh, for early voting. Uh, tell, let's talk about the political significance of the Milwaukee Bucks because they were responding to the shooting of Jacob Blake, and also to the the mass mobilization that you've seen in Kenosha and in around Wisconsin, including in Milwaukee. Kenosha didn't just start having Black Lives Matter marches uh, after the shooting of, of Jacob Blake. Uh, Kenosha has had a Black Lives Matter movement that has been very active for some time. Milwaukee has a Black Lives Matter movement that has been very, very active for a long time. Uh, with people like State Representative David Bowen and others uh, out in the streets on a on a daily basis, uh, talking about police violence in Milwaukee, Madison's had one as well, and and so the Bucks asked to have a conversation with a couple of officials, uh, including Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who is a former state representative from Milwaukee now. Uh, the number two official in the state, and and in that conversation, they basically said, "What can we do? How can we be a part of this broader activism that is that is taking place? How can we do something useful?" And if you read their statement, it was very precise. It, it said that you know they they were standing in solidarity and they were urging the Wisconsin legislature to take up specific pieces of legislation as regards the use of force by the police. This was a, a, an incredibly savvy intervention. It was noted by everyone in Wisconsin, of course. Uh, but I, I do want to emphasize that, that it ought to be seen in the context of this broader mobilization. The, the Bucks chose to join into something that was already there. And it, from the political standpoint, because we so often go back to politics, uh, that that does have significance because in this very closely divided state where small moves, small steps can can have great significance and where people are worried about backlash, they're worried about all these other things for such an institutional force to step up and and say, you know, look, there are precise things that can be done. I think was very significant. I, I think it, it it was a big deal. Unfortunately, and this is the tragedy of Wisconsin, and, and we, we ought not paint it as a pretty picture, the Wisconsin legislature did not respond to what the people in the streets or what the bucks were, were talking about. On Monday, they met, and they had the opportunity to take up a number of pieces of legislation addressing police use of force and oversight and key matters. really would have been a very, very significant step. And instead of acting on it, they gaveled in and gabbled out. They literally, because it was a special session, they had to show up. They called themselves into session, and then they went immediately out of session and did nothing. Meanwhile, in Washington, Trump has, continues to do interviews. He did one on Fox with Laura Ingram on Monday, where he said he had heard that there was, quote, an entire plane filled up with the looters, the anarchists, rioters, people looking for trouble, thugs wearing these dark uniforms, black uniforms with gear and this and that, close quote, heading for a dest destination he did not name. Laura Ingram seemed kind of alarmed and tried to get him to, to walk it back, but he went on to compare cops who shoot 
uh, protesters with people playing golf who, quote, choke on three-foot putts. I would imagine even cops who support Trump would not like that. Uh, You can see why the um, Republicans wanted him to read the teleprompter at the Republican National Convention. But what does this this tell us about uh, Trump's uh, state these days? It was a bizarre interview. In fact, as as you noted, Laura Ingram was was trying on a regular basis to try to to get him to walk back to say, well, if you say that, the media will suggest that you said that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you better not say that. And you did see why apparently he's not been rushed to uh, condemn QAnon and stuff like that because he seemed to be, you know, going into his own conspiracy theories with with a, a great vengeance. The, the troubling thing, the troubling thing of, of all of it is his efforts in, in many interviews recently to try and make excuses for Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old who shot and killed two protesters in Kenosha and, and wounded another individual. And also just in general, the way that he has spoken about militias and vigilantes. Uh, it's pretty clear at this point that Donald Trump is a desperate man. I think he is primarily driven by a desperate desire to be reelected. He knows full well that defeat in November would, in fact, be a rejection of him. So he'll he'll do almost anything and say almost anything to um, to try and find a way to to stir up enough resentment, fear, hatred to get reelected. That's I think that's at the root of his interviews. I think that's at the root of his decision to come to Kenosha. Uh, he is playing an incredibly ugly and dangerous politics. He doesn't even have an instinct to try and heal the country. And and clearly, from these interviews, Trump isn't trying. Trump isn't trying. John Nichols reporting from Kenosha. John, thanks so much. Great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you, sir. Malcolm X wrote in his autobiography, the American Negro has no conception of the hundreds of millions of other non-whites concerned for him. He has no conception of their feeling of brotherhood for and with him. That was in 1965. And today there's a massive international movement of support for Black Lives Matter. That's what Gary Young says. He's been a columnist for The Guardian, and he's now professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. He's also a member of the editorial board of The Nation, and he's the author of the unforgettable book, Another Day in the Death of America, a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives. We reached him today at home in London. Gary, welcome back. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for having me. This summer, you say, huge crowds gathered across Europe to express their solidarity with the rebellions against police brutality sparked by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Tell us a little about those events, the big ones and the small ones. Well, it really did, they really did spread all over Europe. So um, there, were, there were about 3,500 people turned out in Reykjavik in Iceland. <laughs> uh, there were a significant number in Helsinki close to home. There were quite big demonstrations in London. All of this during the pandemic. Some of the demonstrations got kind of testy in uh, France and in Stockholm. And so there was this kind of um, pollination 
of Black Lives Matter, which clearly it starts, well, this iteration of it starts in Minneapolis. And by the time it gets to Europe, people are kind of doing two things with it, really. One is they're expressing solidarity with African-Americans. And the other is they are kind of hoping that there'll be a boomerang effect there and that they can shine a light on the oppressive racial situations in their own countries. Partly, you say, this is part of a larger phenomenon of American movies, American music, American hip-hop style dominating Europe culturally. How much of this attention to cell phone videos of American police killing African-Americans is just part of what could be called American cultural imperialism? Well, certainly American, America dominates. America dominates our lives in a range of ways that you can go into most bars in Britain and people would be able to, most bars may be an exaggeration, but they'll be able to tell you who the president of America is, no doubt. Several people in London will be able to tell you who the Democratic nominee. Some people will be able to tell you who his vice presidential pick was. I think hmm. if you went into American place and you said, who's the president, prime minister of Britain, most people wouldn't know. And if you said who's the leader of the opposition, they definitely wouldn't know. And if you said when's the kind of, you know, election going to be, then, you know, who knows? And that's because America's more powerful. That's it. I mean, it's not because America's better or Britain's worse or so on. And that's also true for black America. So we are more aware of Jay-Z than Americans are of Stormzy. I was more aware of... African-American literature growing up than I was of Caribbean literature, that's where my parents are from, from Barbados, or black British literature. I was much more aware of Maya Angelou and Alice Walker and Suwaka Shange and Richard Wright and so on than I was of Sam Selvin and um, uh, Constantine and uh, Carol Phillips and uh, black British writers. So America dominates and black America also dominates and it dominates not just culturally, but also politically. Does the ubiquity of these cell phone videos of, of police killing black people in Minneapolis and Louisville and Atlanta, does this give Europeans a feeling of superiority over America? Because whatever racial problems you have, your racism is not as violent or vicious or widespread as the Americans. Is that a general feeling? Certainly among white Britons, among them, not all of them, America is militarily superior, it's economically superior, it's politically more powerful. All that Europe has left is a sense of moral superiority. There is a notion of America being worse, that these things happen over there. And of course, there are some facts to contend with. America is a more lethal country, generally. It has a lot of guns. Uh, it executes people. Even suicide is more violent in America and more likely to succeed. So in a range of ways, America is more lethal and therefore its racism is more lethal. In Britain, cops don't carry guns, but in Germany and France and elsewhere, they do. But the terms and conditions almost under which they would use them are going to be more restrained. So there is, there is a sense 
there can, can be a sense that American racism is not just more lethal, but America is a worse place to be if you're black. Now, of course, you have to contend with that, the fact that America has a black middle class, Europe doesn't. America's had a black president. Europe hasn't had one and isn't gonna have one for quite some time. I'd be amazed if it did. The, uh, America has black CEOs in a way that Europe, there's a range of ways in which America is different, not least that it has centuries old black institutions, which Europe doesn't. So among white Europeans, there is certainly a sense that, and I've had someone say this to me, well, that couldn't happen here, or at least that doesn't happen here. Yeah. But of course, we are no strangers to racist violence, to racial violence. Pretty much every country has a totemic death of a young black, usually a man, not always, but usually a young black man that they can talk to. So there is that too. And does this feel this feeling of moral superiority over the United States, is this a sentiment on the left in Europe as well as the center and the right? Yes, I would say among among a certain kind of liberal European, there would be this notion that America is a more brutal country and this is a prime example. But another way of understanding that would be, although they would never say this, our racism is more genteel. We'll, we'll come back to that idea. In, in, of course, most of the recent outrage of the last decade is a consequence of this new technology of the cell phone video. Are there cell phone videos of police violence against people of color in, in Britain, in Europe? Not of killings, no. Of, there was just one just the other day of a black MP who was stopped and um, uh, she was in a car with a friend. Uh, it's a nice car, so they were stopped. So there are videos of people being stopped. There are a couple of videos of people being beaten up. I cannot recall any of anyone being killed in the kind of um, tradition of, in the way of uh, Tamir Rice, George Floyd, Walter Scott. I, I haven't seen any of those. I mean, a lot less people are killed in general, you know, social violence. And therefore, by the time you get to police violence, it's, it's a lot more rare. And in your article in the New York Review, you say that the biggest difference between racism in Europe and the United States is that the most violent acts of European racism were practiced in their colonies. You call that the offshoring of responsibility. If you look at recent, I would call it recent European history as opposed to American history, Europe exported its racism. I mean, we should never forget that slavery came from Europe to the Americas. It wasn't the other way around. Uh, I mean, the, uh, uh, the Americans were happy to kind of take it on and take it over, but um, it's not, it wasn't a Native American's idea and um, it wasn't a Pilgrim's idea, it came uh, it, um, it came from the old world. And, and that as such, Britain and Portugal and France and uh, Belgium, Germany for a while, uh, Denmark more ineptly, uh, Holland quite conclusively, that they all, Italy, they all had their segregation, their Jim Crow abroad. They had their civil rights movements abroad. Our civil rights leaders were Gandhi and Nkrumah 
and Nyeri and Kenyatta, you know, Cabral and others for other countries. So what that has done has given a distance, a physical distance, which has enabled a kind of psychic distance, really. And also it means that the lived experience in America of segregation, for example, has still to work its way out of the system, whereas Europe rarely had segregation in Europe. The segregation was in Kenya and Ghana and, and so on. And so that's given Europeans a kind of a way out, a way to kind of remove themselves from the horrors of their racism. I like to say when I'm um, doing events about race and history and so on, I say it's weird because people say we won the war even if they didn't fight and they weren't born. And they say we won the World Cup even if they didn't play and even if they weren't born. But when you say, well, did you enslave anybody? Did you colonize anybody? They always say, well, I wasn't born. I wasn't there. That has nothing to do with me. And so the collective identity of what it means to be European suddenly becomes absent as soon as you're talking about issues of race. Well, we've gone all this while without mentioning Donald Trump. And that's the great thing about the Black Lives Matter movement. It's bigger than Donald Trump. Getting rid of Donald Trump is not going to solve the problem of, you know, America's original sin and the recent spate of police violence that's been documented so vividly in cell phone videos also predates Donald Trump. In fact, the Obama era was was sort of the, what should we call it, kind of the breakthrough moment for Black Lives Matter. Isn't that right? That's right. Yes. The kind of um, what makes it systemic is the fact that regardless of who's in power, regardless of who's in charge, this thing has continued quite faithfully. And so we're talking about a system rather than an individual. And I think Trump certainly had empowered a kind of nativist sense of entitlement and of antagonism. But first of all, it didn't invent it. And secondly, it both predates and will postdate him. And so I do think his presence has helped coalesce on both sides of the uh, uh, Atlantic, actually, a kind of uh, outrage, a sense of outrage. But it would be a real mistake to think that it, that it lands and stays there. And I think that when you look at the way that it has caught on like a bushfire around Europe, you can see that people get that, that it goes beyond him. So let's talk about um, racism and, and violence in, in Britain and Europe in the fight against it, which has always been a left-wing cause. Mm. If you look at how it landed in Britain uh, and elsewhere, I can talk with some authority elsewhere. There were pre-existing campaigns in, in France, the campaign for Adama Traore, but, uh, in Holland, He's the kind of, he's Santa's sidekick. He's this kind of in, in blackface, kind of uh, whipping up the children. Uh, these are campaigns have been going on for a long time, but they found a kind of a force in this moment. But what we don't have in Britain and elsewhere in Europe are institutions, either black churches, 
or a black bourgeoisie, as you do have in America, or um, organizations like the NAACP or Urban League or organizations that have been around for at least 100 years who have roots uh, either in the community or in the polity. We don't have a congressional black caucus. We don't have any of those things. And so even more than in America, these moments act like floating signifiers and they attach themselves to whatever's going on. And then they kind of develop a life of their own. So in Britain, it's been primarily, not primarily, but it's been about statues and uh, statues to slave owners and so on and decolonizing the curriculum. It's possible in England to go all the way through school and not know about the empire. Uh, in a way that I don't think it's possible to go through even a southern school in America and not know that there was segregation or that, or that there was slavery and that they were a part of it. Uh, there was the pulling down of the Edward Colston statue in Bristol. In and who's he? Who is he? Edward Colston was a slave trader, a 19th century slave trader. There was the defacing of the Leopold uh, of Belgium who did absolutely appalling things in uh, what is now Zaire in the Congo. So his statue was defaced in Antwerp and I think in Brussels as well. There was a statue defaced in Portugal, I think. I think Lisbon had its biggest anti-racist demonstration ever in response to Black Lives Matter. Now, given the Portuguese decolonized in 74 and has a significant number of black people, that tells you something about the kind of power of this moment. And in most places, people are saying the same thing. If you think this is just about America, you've got another thing coming. We need to talk about what's going on here. In France, police in death custody, uh, deaths in police custody. Similarly in Britain, significant discrepancies uh, in income, unemployment, and so on. And in Britain, and I would suspect the rest of Europe, but in Britain, I can tell you for sure, significant discrepancies like in America over who was suffering and dying from COVID. Meaning if you were black, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, you were massively more likely to suffer and to die. If you were Indian, you were significantly more likely. All of these, so it landed in this place. You say you've often been pressed to concede that things are better for black people in Britain than in the United States and that you should know since you've lived in both places. What do you tell the people who press you on that? Well, that's right. I mean, I, I lived in America for 12 years as a Guardian correspondent and a, a Tide Media fellow and a Nation columnist. And when I said I was going back to Britain, which was during the 2015, during the height of Black Lives Matter, and people said, are, are you going because America is so racist? And I would say, well, if I was leaving because America is so racist, do you think I'd be going back to Britain? Particularly here, they want to say, where is better? And I generally tell them, well, there, there is no better kind of racism. And so I'm not going to start playing the game of kind of, well, where, where would you rather be discriminated against? All of these places have their challenges. And as someone with kids who was born in America, who were born in America and have dual citizenship, it's not like I think, well, if you go to one of these two places, your life will be fine. You will have no problems. 
uh, you will have different problems and different opportunities in both places. There is no better kind of racism. Gary Young wrote about what black America means to Europe for the New York Review. Thank you, Gary. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.